0: What are you doing this Thanksgiving?
1: Well, I'm going to probably have a very quiet meal with my wife and perhaps a couple of friends, all of whom are vaccinated.
0: That is, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has become a very familiar voice for many Americans during the pandemic. He's now the chief medical advisor to the president, and we wanted to check in with him as we approach Thanksgiving. Because for a lot of us, Thanksgiving last year was a time of making really tough choices about whether or not to see our family, what kinds of sacrifices we were willing to make to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. This year, though, things feel different, in large part because we have vaccinations.
1: If people are vaccinated, then they should feel good and safe about enjoying in their own homes or the homes of relatives a typical type of a Thanksgiving meal. We still have to be careful of congregate settings indoors in which you are not sure of who is there with you, Uh, namely if you're with the family, you know, who's vaccinated. Fine, get together, even travel to get to where you need to go as long as you have people who are protected. But if you're going to go out in the outside community in a congregate setting, uh, we have to really still continue to abide by the recommendations of the CDC, which means that even people who are vaccinated, given the dynamics of infection, that we need to wear masks in an indoor setting. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports.
0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 22nd. Today, a conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. We cover a lot of really useful advice about why you should get a booster and how you can gather safely with family over the holidays. Plus, we cover how Dr. Fauci feels about having his job and science politicized. For some of us, even those of us who are vaccinated, going to a a Thanksgiving with family where there are either going to be children who are not yet vaccinated or family members who refuse to get vaccinated. I know that's a point of conflict or tension in a lot of people's lives right now, but how would you advise people to navigate those situations of going to a Thanksgiving where they're not 100 percent sure or are 100 percent sure that there will be at least a couple of people there who are vulnerable?
1: Well, the children versus the adults, I think, are two separate situations, because the easiest way to protect children is to surround them with vaccinated people. And now that we have the capability of vaccinating kids who are 5 to 11 or 5 and older, that we should do what we can to get them vaccinated. But if they're not, if they're your children or your grandchildren, then, I mean, obviously you, you, you have to feel comfortable The risk isn't zero, but it's very low Mm -hmm. to have them with you in the home without having them have to wear masks in the home. It's a little bit different. I mean, I think it depends on individuals' uh, willingness to take risk. So if you are vaccinated and you have all of the vaccinated people in the home, it's extraordinarily low risk. There's no risk at zero with this virus, but it's really, really very low. If you have people who are Unvaccinated, who are part of the gathering for a dinner where most of the people are vaccinated, we have a couple of people who are not. Uh, I mean, I have found that if you really want to be very risk free, you just tell them, I'm sorry, hmm. you know, we don't feel that we should be in the same room with you. Or one of the next steps you could take is to have them get a test within 24 or so hours before they come into the house. Because if some people, for one reason or other, They don't want to get vaccinated. They haven't had the opportunity to get vaccinated.
0: They might still be open to being tested.
1: Oh, absolutely. If they're open to be tested, then you should really encourage them to get tested. If they refuse to get tested, then I would really question the good faith of whoever that party is.
0: Hmm. That's a good point. So I looked on the CDC website, and right now we're at about 80 percent of people in the U.S. who have received at least one dose of the vaccine. So for that other 20 percent, do you think that those unvaccinated people could still be persuaded to be vaccinated?
1: I think a certain proportion of them can, because when you have people who are unvaccinated and are, as we use that terminology, hesitant to be vaccinated, there are some who are hesitant because they still need more information. They haven't yet in their own minds had a full explanation of the safety and the efficacy, but they're open to new information. I think
0: But we've been going on a year I, now. I mean I know. I, it, I, it's I, been I, a year of information.
1: I believe it, but there are some people who even after a year of information are still reluctant. So I think that there is a certain subgroup of those who can be convinced. Then it gets to what we're seeing happening. You might reach a point, no matter what you say or what you do, that people are not gonna wanna get vaccinated. And that's the reason why, unfortunately, we will have to resort to mandates in certain circumstances. As we know, the president has said federal workers need to get vaccinated. People who utilize Medicare and Medicaid in their uh, occupation uh, in hospitals that are utilized, Medicare, and Medicaid need to be vaccinated, and businesses with a hundred or more people either need to be vaccinated or need to be tested regularly. I, I think that that is going to put a dent in it. And 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 the thing that I think people don't appreciate, Martine, is that mm-hmm. mandates work. United Airlines now has about ninety nine percent of their people vaccinated. The Houston hospital system has a very high percentage, 90 plus percent. Hmm. Uh, Tyson's Food, I mean, a a number of organizations that have had vaccine requirements have found that even though a lot of people say they wouldn't get vaccinated, when it comes down, the rubber hits the road, they get vaccinated. So I think it's going to be a combination of if you can't convince people, then you can get a lot more going with mandates, even though you would prefer, and I have to say that because people who criticize what we say say, well, you're always pushing to get people to do something they don't want to do. And the fact is, when you're in the middle of a deadly pandemic, it isn't only about you in a vacuum. It's about your societal responsibility. And you do have a societal responsibility to help to contain this outbreak. And you do that by getting vaccinated.
0: Well, so can I ask, it does seem like at this point the administration's efforts are focused really largely on vaccinations, on mandates. But I wonder if there are other levers that you think that the government should be pushing more on. Things like testing and contact tracing that we were talking about earlier in the pandemic. I mean, is there a challenge to... Our strategy being so vaccine focused, especially when there is this very resistant, if you want to say hesitant, but I would say resistant, like hardcore group of people that don't seem to be moving the needle on getting vaccinated.
1: Well, I think what's being underestimated is the effort that the administration is putting now in making point of care sensitive and specific tests widely available now invested billions of dollars to the point where we hope to get more than 200 and as much as a half a billion tests available per month, at least 200 million per month and likely a lot more. So there is a big push. It isn't only isolated, unidimensional with vaccines. We don't want to underestimate the importance of vaccines, but we also are pushing very hard to get easy point-of-care, 15-minute sensitive tests available. And then what about treatment
0: pills? Because we've heard Merck, Pfizer, they have been coming up with treatments that are seem to be very promising. What role do you see that playing in fighting COVID?
1: Well, they certainly play a role in fighting COVID, but don't ever think they're going to be a substitute for vaccination. That is just not the case. Hmm.
0: Because I've heard people talking about this, like, you know, this is the kind of plan B, right? If you're not going to go, if you're not going to get vaccinated, then if you wind up getting COVID and being hospitalized, then you'll just get this treatment and you'll be fine.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that's a bad assumption. (laughs) Because if you, first of all, in, in the tenets of infectious disease, it is always, always better not to get infected. Than to get infected. I mean, that's that's a no brainer. However, if even if you look at drugs like molnupiravir, if you take it within three or five days of getting infected, you have a fifty percent diminution in the likelihood that you'll get hospitalized or die.
0: Diminution, I'm I'm assuming, just means decrease, like a lower chance. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Sorry, (laughs) is is that medical speak? (laughs) It decreases. it decreases the uh, the likelihood that you're going to get hospitalized or die the newer drug from Pfizer which is the protease inhibitor again it's an oral administered drug just like molnupiravir and if given within 3 days of getting infected to the point of symptomatic infection it decreases by 89% the likelihood that you would go on to need hospitalization or would go on to die. So if you happen to be infected, it's a promising drug. However, do you know how you can get 100% chance of not getting hospitalized or dying? Is don't get infected in the first place.
0: One thing that has been, I think, kind of scary for many people who assumed that this is a time where we're starting to get safer, especially if you're vaccinated, is seeing the surge in Europe, especially in places like Germany, where vaccination rates were very high. What do you think that we in America can learn from that surge in Europe?
1: Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, if you look at the countries that are really in trouble, even though some who've done well with vaccinations are starting to see a surge... But most of the ones that are having the worst surges are the Eastern European countries that are much less efficiently vaccinated compared to several of the Western European. It isn't 100% one or the other. But if you look at the level of infection, it's much more prominent in the under-vaccinated countries. That's point number one. Point number two is that we really need to push on getting people boosted. There's no doubt from looking At the Israeli data, that A, even people who are healthy, normal people have a waning of immunity over time. You still get pretty good protection against serious disease, but immunity wanes. And the Israelis show it wanes over all age groups ultimately. First among the elderly, for sure, much more prominent among the elderly, but after a period of time, it wanes in others. And they show that when you boost, Not only do you increase the level of neutralizing antibodies, but you decrease considerably the likelihood that you'll wind up getting severe disease. So no doubt, boosters work. We taped this interview with
0: Dr. Fauci before the FDA and CDC signed off on Pfizer and Moderna boosters for all adults. And we asked Dr. Fauci about this tension within the government, between people like him, who thought that everyone should get a booster as soon as possible to give us all optimal immunity, and people who thought that boosters should be reserved for the most at-risk population— I asked him, what about the argument that many people in the world still don't have access to a first dose? Shouldn't we focus on
1: vaccinating them? I think, Martine, with all due respect, you're conflating two things that shouldn't be conflated. So let's take the need for vaccines in the developing world. Uh, I am a strongest proponent that you could imagine that we have a moral obligation, not only us, but the rich countries of the world, to make sure that we get doses to people in the developing low and middle income countries. And we are already doing more than any other country, all other countries combined. We have given or will give 1.1 billion doses. We've given $4 billion to COVAX, and we're putting a major effort into expanding the capacity of companies for the sole purpose of making doses for the developing world. That is a separate issue, from whether or not you are going to give boosters to get optimal protection. Mm -hmm. So let's just focus now on boosters and put aside what I consider a clear obligation to the developing world. Um, If you say, well, vaccination without a boost is good, that is true. But vaccination with a boost is better. So it depends on what you want. Do you want good or do you want optimal? And I I would vote for optimal. Clearly, clearly, the most important thing is to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. That's absolutely a very, very strong, high priority.
0: And you don't see that as being in conflict with also no. getting the people with two doses a third dose.
1: No, no. Why is it in conflict? they are two sets of people. Mm-hmm. You're getting people... Well, the-
0: the, the people who would look at the, at the third dose and say, well, isn't this evidence that the vaccine isn't as effective as people described it at the beginning?
1: Uh, no, not at all. I'm sorry. I would have to argue that. Mm-hmm. So you want to say, guess what? Just because you need three doses, I don't want to get two doses. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry. <It laughs> doesn't necessarily make sense to me,
0: but that is how a lot of people have seen it.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I could understand that. It isn't that the vaccine is not effective. Is that the optimal protection, when we look back on it, almost certainly will be three doses for the mRNA at least. When we did the original studies, it was an emergency situation. We had to get vaccines out to people. So we did a prime and a boost that was three to four weeks later. It would have been nice if we had a year and a half to do an extended phase 2A and 2B study to determine what the right duration is, what the right interval between doses are. Is it six months? Is it eight months? It is three months. But we didn't have the time to do that. We were in an emergency situation. So we did the best, what thought, under the circumstances. And the best was a prime followed a few weeks later by a boost. That doesn't mean that that's the optimal way to do it. So what we're trying to figure out now is what is optimal. And from the results we've gotten with boosters so far, it's quite clear that that third shot of an mRNA clearly markedly enhances protection.
0: After the break, why Dr. Fauci is getting death threats. F- you, Dr. Fauci. I hope they put you in a cage with a bunch of flies and let them eat you. And then I hope they hang you from the highest tree. And what he thinks it says about America today. As you can probably tell from that tape, this part of the conversation might be a bit upsetting for some listeners. We'll be right back. For the past year and a half, Dr. Fauci has become this incredibly high-profile figure. For so many people, he is beloved. This public health official who held the country's hand during the worst of the pandemic, who stood up for science in the moments that mattered and became kind of a hero. But a lot of Americans do not trust Dr. Fauci. Some of them even hate him. And since the beginning of the pandemic, he and his office have been the targets of vitriol and sometimes even threats. Threats that sound like this. you, Dr. Fauci. I hope they put you in a cage with a bunch of flies and let them eat you. And then I hope they hang you from the highest tree. This is a message that was left on Fauci's voicemail last month. It is one of a huge collection of threatening recordings that was obtained by our colleagues at the
1: Post. Hey, Fauci, you evil. F-. I forgot to mention your demise is self orchestrated, you piece. Of f-. You're not going to get away with this. And now you've been exposed, you evil. F-. Your days are numbered, rotten hell. F-.
2: You're one of the sickest, most psychopathic individuals on this planet. And humanity is coming for you. There will be Nuremberg too when you're done. Because you're, you, you're a sick, satanic, demonic piece of
0: These threats came after a campaign by an animal rights group with connections to conservative operatives. According to health policy reporter Yasmin Talib. this is just the latest coordinated attack against Fauci and his office.
2: So we're talking about thousands of calls. In one 36-hour window, his main office line received 3,600 calls. His staffers had to stop answering the phone. For his main office line, just his personal assistant answers that phone. She couldn't answer it for two weeks because it was so overwhelmed with calls. And the public inquiries line, which is banned by only two staffers, couldn't answer the phone for about a week because they just didn't want to subject staffers to the abuse that was coming in on those phone lines. These threats
0: aren't new, and they demonstrate how much the experience of being a public health official has changed, in part because of political polarization.
2: Dr. Fauci is probably the most prominent example, but throughout the pandemic, we've seen public health officials resign at alarming rates because of the burnout and the hostility that's been directed towards them from the beginning because... A lot of people just don't want to follow the public health guidelines that we've had to during this pandemic. They've been difficult. And I think they take out that anger and resentment on the health officials who are telling them what they should do.
0: One thing that I've noticed about Dr. Fauci is how he toes this line between trying to be transparent and honest about the reality of things, but also trying to be optimistic. You can hear it in his public statements at many points in the pandemic, that if we take the right steps, if we work together, if we listen to science, then we can really turn things around. But in the rest of my conversation with him, it really surprised me how much it sounded like these threats were having an effect. Dr. Fauci, I want to ask, you know, throughout the pandemic, you have been the target of a lot of different threats and misinformation campaigns. Some of our colleagues at The Post have been reporting on these threats and the ways that that's affected you and your office. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit personally about what toll that has taken on you and on your experiences and on your family.
1: Well, I mean, I've spoken about that before. Obviously, it's not pleasant. I mean, to have, I mean, The rationale behind it is more disturbing than what it is. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that it's what kind of society in which you have a public servant who's not a political person, who the only thing he's saying is he wants people to get vaccinated and he wants people in congregate settings to wear masks. And we want people to practice public health practices. And for that, his life gets threatened, his wife and his children Get harassed and threatened. So, to me, it's yes, it's an assault on me, but it is also an assault on science in general, because other scientists and public health officials who speak up are also getting threatened. I mean, I'm a very visible person who's being threatened, and I get threatened a heck of a lot more than others, but it isn't just me. It's an assault on science. And that is something that, as a society, we better take stock of that. Because that is something that's very, very threatening to the foundation of our society. Do you think that there's a way back from that? Uh, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Because
0: (laughs) (laughs) I frankly don't. And I'm not even sure that I believe that there is a way back. (laughs) And
1: and that's why I'm I'm not semi-facetiously saying, do you have any ideas? Because what has happened is that we are right now, for anybody paying attention to it, in the midst of a very, very divisive country. There's no doubt about that. And divisiveness is bad under any circumstances. Divisiveness is catastrophic when it occurs in the middle of a deadly pandemic because we take our eyes off the target that the common enemy is the virus. And if you look around and you were coming from Mars and landed here, you would think that the common enemies was each other, and it isn't. So there's no room for ideological bents in any way when you're looking at public health principles. Public health principles are immutable. They're very clear. You don't have a public health principle of one type if you're a Democrat or another type if you're a Republican. They're independent of politics. We seem to have made them linked to politics in many ways. You look at the map of the country And the under-vaccinated and higher levels of infection clearly are much more predominant in the red states. That should never be. There's no reason from a public health standpoint why that should occur.
0: Dr. Fauci, one last question. Um, We started talking about Thanksgiving, and I just want to ask you, what are you grateful for this Thanksgiving?
1: Well, I'm grateful that we are making progress, that we have a tool available, that if we utilize it, we can put an end to this. if we got virtually overwhelming majority, close to all the people in the country vaccinated, we would not be in this situation. So I'm grateful for what we have, but I'm also concerned that we're not utilizing this to the extent in which we utilize it. I've been involved for 40 years with infectious diseases, outbreaks, some of which we don't have highly effective interventions. That's very frustrating is even as, if not more frustrating, when you have a deadly pandemic and you have a highly effective and safe intervention, and you're not utilizing it for reasons that don't seem to make any sense.
0: On a a somewhat bittersweet note, Dr. Fauci, thank you so much. All right. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and the chief medical advisor to the president. You also heard from Yasmin Abu Talib, she's a health policy reporter for the Post. We'll put a link to her story in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick and Lena Mohammed, who also mixed the show. Before we go, one last note. I know I give you a lot of reminders about why it pays to subscribe to The Washington Post. If you've been thinking of finally becoming a subscriber or want to do something nice for someone, listen up. Right now, you can get a subscription to The Post for just 99 cents every four weeks. And you can give a full year as a gift for just $9.99. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. It's the best deal that we've offered, and it's only happening for a few days.